The Low Post is presented by Amazon Music. Did you know you could be listening to this episode of The Low Post ad-free on Amazon Music? And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on Friday morning from beautiful Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where the one and only Doris Burke and I were both in attendance for Game 6 last night. And it didn't go the way the very loud and very raucous Philadelphia 76ers fans hoped it would. It looked like it was going to go that way when they had stormed back from a 14, 16-point deficit. Bang, bang, George Niang hit some threes. Joel Embiid was starting to get rolling. James Harden was missing everything. But that's okay. Joel Embiid was starting to get rolling. And (laughs) then the wheels fell off in the fourth quarter. The Philadelphia 76ers scored three points in the last five minutes and 57 seconds of the game. The big fella, the MVP, barely touched the ball. And Jason Tatum shook off what was about to be an all-time postseason game. A game that would have thrust the Celtics into an uncertain, somewhat uncertain anyway, offseason. And now, just like last year when they lost Game 5 at home and won Game 6 in Milwaukee, Game 7 of the second round is in Boston on, I believe, Sunday. Doris Burke. How loud was that crowd last night, by the way? That was deafening. Oh, my gosh. I hit the talk back button at the start of our broadcast saying this may be the loudest arena I have been in this year. They were ready to go. And uh, I saw Jalen Brown because I was amazed at sort of the stay of nature of the Boston Garden in game five. It sounded quiet. And obviously the start didn't help. Uh, so Jalen Brown begging them to be as loud. But I just want to go back to what you said about Jason Tatum, because I have so many friends in New England. As you know, I I, I spent part of the year up there in Rhode Island. And um, I had, you know, a couple of Celtics fan, fans in the business of TV. I had just New England friends who are big Boston Celtic fans saying he'll never shake this. This will be attached to his reputation forever. This is as bad as somebody can play in this scenario. And for Jason Tatum to start one for 14, Zach, and have the self-belief, that unshakable self-belief that superstars have, that I don't care if I miss, you have to be willing. I think it was Paul Pierce who said something like, you have to be willing to miss 20 straight shots and continue to shoot the basketball. Um, Just an incredible response in the fourth quarter. And... uh, Boy, oh boy, the one thing I'd say is I'm, I'm interested in something and I'm wondering if you're watching this at all. Where is that in-between game of Jason Tatum? Um, the, the, the game where, you know, down the stretch, and it's all sort of running together for me, mm-hmm. where he makes big shots to close the game. Uh, he had the fadeaway mid-range jump shot. You know, you got to make tough twos at this time of year. And he feels like, and I've got to, you know, I don't know if you can pull up his shot chart right now. It's threes or rim. And I'm like, sometimes we got to get to where he, he likes those spots. Am I crazy? No. And he even, he airballed a layup in transition with his left hand. That was contested. But when yeah. he airballed that layup, I was like, oh my God, is this like one of those games? And then like you, like you said, it was threes at the end over Maxi, a couple of step back threes on switches. He, he worked a lot on his floater his floater was kind of two seasons ago three seasons ago was kind of a joke among Boston fans like oh here comes another Tatum floater that'll miss and he like got better at it and last year in the playoffs 
you know, their best offense was like hunt the mismatches with Tatum and Brown and shoot over guys. And sometimes they kind of lose the plot a little bit. But yeah, he he rescued. I mean, he didn't just rescue it. It was like he he had more points in 90 seconds than he did in the entire previous, you know, 40 whatever minutes of the game. It was like a it was an avalanche all of out of nowhere. Yeah. He in 40 seconds, I believe he had seven points and he had or maybe it was six points in 40 seconds, whatever it was. And the rest of the game, he had had seven. Um, so so what a response. And how about pulling the trigger on the switch to Robert Williams in the starting lineup for Joe Missoula? And uh, it's funny, you know, in talking to Doc Rivers, and you know this, we're, we're like 75 and 60 minutes or 90 and 75 minutes. We sit down with the coaches. And uh, I think Shams had already put it maybe out on Twitter or something that this might be a possibility. And you guys know these coaches don't miss anything. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, we wonder if they pull a trigger. We've been thinking that this might be coming here. And sure enough, the Celtics make that move. And, you know, boy, the rim protection that that Rob provides, the, the space he jams up without staying with um, with Joel. So on any spin, Robert's there. Um, and the ability for him to fly out and contest, just just pretty great stuff. I like the move. I know Joe Missoula. I mean, if you listen to him talk, it's all spacing. It's all playmaking. It's all three-point shooting. Um, and when we asked him pregame about the switch, the very first question Mark Jones asked him is just like every other play-by-play -play guy, coach your starting lineup for tonight. Or we've had this series three games. So he says, same starting lineup. And Joe says, nope, actually we're making the switch. <laughs> What'd you think? I thought it was long overdue. Yeah. Um, the very first thing I said about this series before, I, I believe before it was even cemented as a second round series was this feels, it was like two or three weeks ago on this podcast. Like this feels like a Robert Williams, Al Horford series. And I says specifically said, Robert Williams on PJ Tucker to Rome, Horford yep. on Embiid. It just makes sense. And this whole series, I've been saying, I just don't understand what's happened to the Boston Celtics big man rotation. They never play the two bigs that got them to the finals last year. I understand you want to go to this other look where it's worked for you all season with Horford at the five. It's a great look. It's it's like a core part of your identity. And in this series, it forces Embiid out of the paint. And so your driving attack has a lot more space to operate, and that's their bread and butter. Um, but to have it just excised completely really confused me. The Grant Williams thing is still completely baffling to me. I just don't understand what happened. So to me, I've been waiting for this move the whole series, and I wish people could see I have an extensive like notes file on every series that I'm typing game to game. And starting in game three, I start writing, should they start RW? I abbreviate all the players for brevity's sake in my insane note-taking on my Google Docs. Because it was it was very obviously the only way the Celtics were going to get minutes, extensive minutes, with him and P.J. Tucker on the floor at the same time. Doc Rivers, as I've said all the last week or so, has essentially played Robert Williams to the fringes of this series by not letting him be on the floor with one of their non-shooters, who are really just Tucker and McDaniels, who's not even playing anymore. As right. soon as Robert Williams comes in the game, Tucker out, Niang in. As soon as Robert Williams comes in the gang, it, McDaniels out, Niang in, Melton in, whoever. And it was very obvious that the only way they were going to get those minutes was with Robert Williams starting, unless, and that's the subplot for the next game, 
do the Sixers make a starting lineup change to get P.J. Tucker out of the starting five? That's a painful one, even if it makes sense, because he's been so core to their leadership, their identity, their toughness, their offensive rebounding. But to to your question, I just couldn't believe it took this long. And it makes me think, and I think you and I have heard a little bit of this too, I think there was a fair amount of internal dialogue, let's say, within the Celtics about this move. And I don't think – I don't necessarily think the head coach was like the driver of making this move. That And that's not abnormal. Like all teams have debates and discussions and people are pulled in different directions. I just can't believe it took this long. Yeah. Well, Better late I, than never. A hundred percent. And it just, it's a striking contrast from a year ago with Ime Odoka, who to your point about Grant Williams and Robert Williams felt like every string pulled by Ime was defensively oriented where every string pulled by Joe seems much more about spacing. He likes the defensive five on Al Horford. He thinks that helps their offense function. He likes playmaking on the floor. I agree with the Grant Williams thing. And here's here's one thing that you know. I mean, Robert Williams, Zach, was averaging 18 minutes per game in the series prior to yesterday. And it's very hard when somebody doesn't start to get them to 28, 32, 35 minutes I literally asked Joe, once he told us the starting lineup switch, I said, you know, Joe, I'm trying to basically wrap my mind around what's gone on with Robert this year. Obviously, slow start because of the offseason knee surgery. Comes back, starts for, I believe, 20 games, gets the hamstring, and then never makes it back into the starting rotation. And therefore, his impact had been limited. And after what we saw last year, you're thinking this young man's on a trajectory to grow and grow and grow. They start involving him a little bit more offensively, right, with the dribble handoffs and doing some things. You saw his threat as a vertical threat at the rim um, in a couple of moments last, last night. Had the, smart, the smart Williams two-man game was yeah. a little – when they were like wheezing, they got a dunk out of it and I think free throws out of it too. And think about Marcus has a brilliant basketball game, but he made two lot passes that weren't weren't on target. Or there could have been a couple more dunks for them. Um, so, yeah, you know, I am fascinated. And your point about PJ is so well well taken because she – and I want your perception on this. I think there was a minute and 52 left in the game. Philadelphia had had a bad p- possession. But it's eight points uh, with a minute and 52. You know this is an eternity. And I just blurted out on the air because I was stunned by it. Embiid and and Harden were so frustrated that they stopped playing. They were walking up the court in defensive transition. And I'm saying the game is not over and they're walking up the floor. And see, it's those little moments where PJ and Tobias, you see the effort, the diving on the floor, the going to scrap out a loose ball. Where And the moment it'll go down in Philadelphia lore, Zach, if Philadelphia can go on the road and win. The moment in the game where Al Horford blocks, so I'm going back, obviously, a couple games. The moment Al has blocked Joel three times in the game, I don't think Joel was, you know, it felt like he had become passive all of a sudden. I'm thinking he's getting blocked. Now his knee is bothering him. And it took a the P.J. Tucker offensive rebound score and then get in the grill of Joel Embiid and say, there isn't anybody who can guard you one-on-one. And one of the things I think, and I asked Doc this pregame, Zach, one of the things I think Doc has had to do all year, and this has nothing to do with X and no, 
I said, Doc, can you co correct something if this is a misperception on my point? I said, I feel like one of your greatest jobs this year has been to convince this team that they have enough, but that this will be hard and that it's going to be little moments that decide what has to happen. And, you know, he sort of humbly asked the question, but I believe that. I believe 100% he has had to convince this group that they have enough to win a championship because you know this, there's, there's moments in a playoff series when your opponent puts enough pressure on you or things aren't going your way offensively or whatever, just the hard moments that inevitably come in a, in a playoff series. And he's had to convince them. And that emotional terrorism line, I freaking loved it. This is hard as hell. It's hard. It's hard winning in this league. And they, as great as these players are, there are moments of doubt or weakness or lack of confidence or whatever. And you got to flex your way through it. you got to believe, just like Jason Tatum did last night. So the possession you're talking about, and I just rewatched the last five minutes of the game to remind myself what in the hell was Philadelphia doing on offense in those five minutes. And I saw that possession. I was at the game, so I wasn't listening to your call. And I heard you say you were – aghast aghast and it came through on the broadcast that possession was walk it up because that's all they're going to do is always walk it up uh harden and bead pick and roll and bead has 17 post touches in this game that's his second most in any game this season and most in the playoffs zero of those 17 came in the last five minutes of the game zero i just rewatched all of them harden wow. and bead pick and roll switch switch yeah and bead has jalen brown at the nail that's his office. That's a sweet spot. Harden has Horford on him on a switch. And, you know, that's been a good battle. So Horford's had some wins, and Harden's had some wins, including big, in game one. Big time. And Embiid, it was almost as if he knew he's not going to give me the ball or we've been just running the offense through James and Tyrese a little bit in these last five minutes. He didn't really even try to get to, to seal – Jalen at the nail and he kind of just let Jalen deny him the ball. And then in, in a, like a second, just kind of turned and faded to the rim for a potential offense to rebound. Harden drove at Horford. Horford stoned him, stood him up. I don't know if he blocked it or it was just an ugly miss. It was something. And that's the possession you're talking about. And that was Philly's offense down the stretch. I mean, Joel missed one pick and pop jumper. Um, Melton and Tucker both missed wide open threes off that pick and roll that they're giving them. I mean, Melton and Tucker going two of 11 from three last night was more or less the game. And um, Melton missed some like, oh, my God, would you like to have those back kind of looks? And, and if you correct me if I'm wrong, but I, he was 40 percent in the series. He, he made 157 in the regular season career high. Um, I think he's been such an important acquisition defensively. Like his ability to stay in front of the ball um, and keep pressure on the ball is really something else. But boy, oh boy, you are a hundred percent right, PJ and 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 DeAnthony. And DeAnthony had some looks. They're going to get looks, right? They're they're putting so much emphasis on Joel and 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 James that those guys are going to get looks and they got to make those shots. And I got to say this, you know, it's been such an interesting series for Al Horford because. Um, you know, the, the conversation of calling himself an elite shooter and then watching the struggles. And again, he he continues to be such a prideful, smart, tough, individual defensive player um, that even when he's missing shots, he's having such an important 
effect on the series. And we caught this moment a couple of times and the way the game plays with some of the, the sponsorship elements and all the things you've got to do in the course of a broadcast, you can't always get back to some of the compelling video that we have. And all game long, Zach, and, you know, credit to my director and, and, uh, and our cameramen who are just absolutely brilliant at what they do. We'll be in timeouts and they'll say, hey, hey, look at this. Al Horford was as communicative on the bench and in the face of, like, there's a play first half. Uh, Jason Tatum is, you know, uh, lower, lower box. He's checking Maxie in the corner and he falls asleep. And Maxie just straight line drives him, dunk. And it was when, when they had built that early lead and Philadelphia makes a push. And it's always those segments of the game, right? You've built the lead, but those two or three minute segments, you just let them back in and Tatum fell asleep. Horford gave them the business in the next timeout. And that, that, I, I am just so fascinated by those, by those moments. You said something, I want to go back, back to it. Since you watched the last five minutes and I've spent the morning packing to go up to Rhode Island this morning. <laughs> Well, look, there's a there's a Wawa next to my hotel, so I loaded up on coffee, DB. I'm I'm ready. Wawa got me ready. Sponsored by Wawa. I get no money for this. Wawa. I don't know what their slogan is. Wawa. It's good. Oh, it's great. Wawa. Wawa in Philadelphia. It's a big deal. I, I marvel. My son-in-law loves Wawa. But uh, that, down the stretch of the five last five minutes, how much did Maxi have the ball in that two-man game in that final five and a half? plus minutes some uh not as much as Harden and there was no force there was no force behind anything they did there was no there was no north south force force behind anything they did and Joel just wasn't wasn't as involved enough you can now stream the most MLB games on direct TV without a satellite dish yes catch the clutch hits strikeouts grand salamis web gems with nothing on your roof so who's there up there whether it's roofers santa Birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons. Watch out for them. You name it. They won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done. Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. I want to zoom out. You mentioned Horford, and that got me Horford's urgency. I mean, he wants this. He wants a championship. He also wants to beat Philly. The fans hate him. It's yeah. like visceral. <laughs> we got to just stop for a second and talk about like this game on Sunday in Boston. This is as big a game as exists in the second round of the NBA playoffs. These are two titanic NBA teams. Yeah. Two historic all-time rivals. Yeah. In a game seven knowing the winner of this series is going to be favored to win the conference finals against Miami or New York, yeah. Yeah. knowing Phoenix is out, 
Memphis is out, if you cared about Memphis. I mean, the West team, where I'm going to talk about the West later, is going to be really, really good. Like, whether it's Denver, Golden State, Lakers, that's going to be, let's just call it a 50-50 series. Let's not look too far ahead to the finals. Just say it's going to be a tough series. But it's there for these teams. Oh, yeah. Boston. Think about what's facing these organizations. You brought Boston. Yeah, go ahead. Just got the All-NBA news yesterday. Yes, they did. $600 million. <laughs> and and you are faced with a decision immediately. Yeah. Supermax Jalen Brown or what? Because there's not going to be a negotiation there, I don't think. That's a Supermax or uh-oh. Philly. Everyone in the league has been talking about James Harden going to Houston for a year. Right. If they lose in a demoralizing way in Game 7. Yeah. I have no idea what the hell is going to happen with that team. Nobody could ha- possibly have any idea what's going to happen with that team. It just um, if Harden leaves, they don't have as of now the flexibility to like go out and get Chris Middleton or something like that. If Harden leaves and they've lost again in this same round and again in a heartbreaking fashion, I mean I, I don't Joel Embiid's under contract for quite some time. I don't know how he will feel about everything if his co-star and pick-and-roll partner walks out the door right. and they've lost – I mean, these are the stakes in a game. This is as this is as big a game as can possibly happen at this stage of the playoffs. I mean, that's not – that's that's just is. No, these are the high-leverage moments for organizations that believe they have enough to win a championship. And – um and it's funny, as at our production meeting, you know, you talk like at the top of the show, what do you discuss? And that was our discussion was like the loser of this series is going to have some foundational earthquakes moving under their feet because of, as you said, the rumors all year have been hard. Well, 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 think about think about Philly. They have a chance to win at home. Biggest game of their season. They have this incredible road win. And yeah, Boston shot horribly. They took that win in Boston. Yeah. The crowd just bloodlust last night. It was it was it felt like it was there and then it wasn't. Think about Boston. Imagine if they lose this series at home in game seven. That's bad enough itself, losing at home in game seven. That's hurt that hurts. It's not bad. I mean, Philly can win game seven. I'm saying it just hurts to lose game seven at home. Then you look back and say, Boy, game one without Embiid, we lost. Game four, up five with two minutes to go after hitting two just gut punch threes. Gut punch, knockout, blow threes. We lose. We have the last possession fiasco where we don't get a shot off. We have the other last possession fiasco where we bizarrely guard Embiid with Marcus Smart and he hits James Harden for a go-ahead three. Think about, like, you never get over that. The only way you get over that is by winning the series. You never get over those things if you lose the series. So so I want to go back to something you said um, about Jalen Brown, you know, do you have any reservations at all about the pairing of Jalen and Jason? I mean, only in the sense of there is some degree of positional and skill overlap between them. Right. Like, like Tatum is unbelievable. It looks like he's going to top out as like a five or six assists a game kind of guy. I don't know what he averages here. I'm guessing it's around there. Yeah. Jalen Brown is perpetually just – one-to-one assist to turnover ratio absolutely um, and, and there was there were a couple of plays last night where 
they teamed up in a pick and roll. And every time they do that, I smile because you're like, all right, this is what we want. The two stars cooperating and blah, blah. And all it ends up doing is having P.J. Tucker and Tobias Harris switch. And they're the two best Philadelphia defenders on the floor in a lot of these minutes. And over in the corner is Marcus Smart with Tyrese Maxey on him. And in the other corner is Malcolm Brogdon with James Harden on him. You're like, well, I kind of would like those guys to be involved instead of the guys you're involving. So just like tiny, but their track record is just one of enormous success. Like nothing's perfect, right? Like that, that's that's the risk you run in like doing these alternate visions of like, what if we traded Jalen Brown for X, Y, and Z? Okay, well, what's the X, Y, and Z going to be? Um, yeah. What message is that going to send to Jason Tatum, who is a first-team All-NBA player who's ready to win right now? And yeah, it's would you ideally, if you had to construct an ideal second player for Jason Tatum, might it be Joel Embiid? Might it be Giannis? Might it be, I mean, I don't, I mean, those are obvious ones, but could it be like what everyone thinks Evan Mobley will be in for you? I maybe, but this is pretty damn good. Like it's not, it's not perfect, but it's pretty damn good. Right. All right. So then one other topic is on, you know, Jason Tatum's start. You know, I think Michael Jordan in 1997 and James Harden in 2019. Um, he joined those guys in futility in the first quarter or first half of a playoff game. Is there a way, and we asked this to Joe, you know, do you try to get him something, Jason Tatum, early? Um, you know, a physical rim finish, uh, you, you know, something, even a mid-post turnaround jump shot. Have you ever seen this where a first quarter and three consecutive games has been that abysmal? And there's been times where Jalen Brown starts have mm. mapped his inability to score. Does that slow start in any way concern you for him? And if you're the coach, are you leveraging something, whatever your best play is to try to get him started or even run the offense through him? Because normally Jalen is super aggressive in that first period, right? He straight line drives you, you know, or he gets to, to a three on a catch and shoot situation. Do you think that is at all significant? Um, yeah, I'd like to see Jason Tatum get going. And I think they will. I mean, they ran, they run their stuff, right? And their stuff is, you know, on ball and off ball actions involving their best players and Maxi or Embiid. They've been trying to get Embiid involved and they ran it. And maybe in the first quarter, you tell Jason Tatum, hey, instead of just sort of passing off to the next, you know, passing the baton to the next guy, if you have Ty Tyrese Maxi, just go for it. If, or if you have a, I don't know, just, yeah, I would, I would. But you're right, Jalen Brown in first quarters is like uh, Michael Jordan cross with Shaq for like yeah. five minutes, and then then it, it doesn't it doesn't last. I know you have to go. Can we get into a couple of things really quickly? Sure. I want to read you some stats to the degree that this has been a shot making series. Like whoever shoots better wins. Wins, yeah. Free throws for the series. You ready? Philadelphia 130 attempts. Boston 129 attempts. Wow. Turnovers for the series. Philadelphia 69 turnovers, Boston 71 turnovers. Oh. Off uh offensive rebounds for the series. Boston 53, Philadelphia 50. Like all the sort of other ingredients are absolutely dead even and Boston is just outshot Philly. Robert Williams and Al Horford last night plus 9 together in 19 minutes. And I want to go through with you the sequence of these games and why that substitution was important. In game three, you were there. You had the call, I think. Would you were you on game three in Philly? 
Was I on game? So I did, yeah, because we did three and four. And yeah, then- so so three is the Boston win, and yeah. it's the game in which Boston kind of tweaks its pick-and-roll defense to basically say, we're staying at home on Embiid. We're not giving him easy nail catches. And yeah. James, we're giving you a driving lane. We're just giving it to you. Like, we're going to open up and give you a driving lane, and yeah. we're, we're going to have who's ever on Tucker – ready to help is like a second layer of defense. Your, your guy's going to give you an alley. Horford's going to stay on Embiid. And we're going to dare you to beat us with the drive. And you were astonished that it got in his head. He was passing out of stuff. Um, he was hesitant. He became, he became so indecisive that there was a moment where he turns the corner and he almost travels by hitting the ground before he makes just a god-awful pass that gets tipped out of bounds. It's James freaking Harden. His indecision blew me away. So sorry, sorry. Go so ahead. in in game four, credit to James Harden, who, by the yeah. way, can he just have a normal game? He's had <laughs> one normal game, one, two, two transcendent games, yeah. and three like, oh yeah, that's James Harden in an elimination game. Games like, can we just? <laughs> all he needs to do is be normal, and the Sixers usually win. But anyway, in game four, to his credit, he knew that defense was coming, and he said, "Yeah, I, I wasn't great in game three. I'm going to take what you give me in game four. I'm going to take that driving lane and see what happens. And that righted Philadelphia in game four and game five. And he realized if that second layer of defense is Marcus Smart or Jalen Brown or Jason Tate, I'm like, if I have momentum, I can get through those guys and get to the line. He's averaging seven free throws a game after a slow start in this series. And that's when the Celtics made their change. That second layer of defense is now going to be a seven-foot guy who can jump out of the gym. And that was necessary, and it worked. And it Harden essentially forced their hand by playing better against that defense, um, to to his credit. And now I'm assuming that lineup starts again in Game 7. And Philly Philly will have tough tough decisions to make. Like, Doc has had a quicker hook with Tucker. He's playing the three guards together more. We'll see what they do, but it's been a fun chess match, huh? Oh, my gosh. So so to your point, because I was curious about this, uh, the Embiid, Harden pick and roll, obviously the most productive pick and roll tandem by far. James, the most assist to Joel by far. You said they decided the free throw line and nail was where Joel was going to operate. So in games two, three and four, they got a total of nine jump shots for Embiid. Game five alone, they got nine jump shots for Embiid. So he makes the 10 free throws and all jumpers in a 30-plus point game and didn't have a score in the restricted area. And you know what they did? When he got rolling in that game, and you saw it a little bit last night when he got one pick-and-pop jumper at the nail, they they took Horford off of him and put yes. Smart on him or yes. Brown on him and said, we're taking away your pick-and-roll. It's becoming too easy. We're going to yes. switch. And that looms, and I know you got to go, that looms is the is maybe the other most interesting subplot of Game 7 is how often does Boston do that and how can Philly counter it? Because the Celtics are bothering him with those guys fronting him and denying and killing the clock, and it hasn't been as easy as him for him. Brogdon he's had an easier time with, but the other guys are like, making it difficult for him. And I feel like if he gets a couple pick-and-pop jumpers early, we might see Boston go to that and say, solve it. All right, Doris Burke, you got a long drive ahead of you. Unless you have any final thoughts, I want you to get on the road. The Hall of Famer, the one and only, it's so wonderful to see you. I will see you during the next couple rounds at Places TBD.
Thank you, Doris. Can't wait. Thank you, Zach. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's macy's.com slash gift finder. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Doris is gone on the road. I got to get on the road. It's early in the morning. Unable to scramble a second guest for this. So you just got me. You're stuck with me for a bit here. On Nuggets Suns, and for the second straight season, the Phoenix Suns season ends in an absolute humiliation at home in this round, down by 9 million points, actually 30 at halftime, without Chris Paul, without DeAndre Ayton. And last year was game seven, this year was game six, so traded a whole bunch of stuff for Kevin Durant, and uh, I guess in, in a lot of ways got one game fewer shorter, whatever, in the playoffs. And there is a lot of potential fallout from that. It's hard to lose that way two years in a row. Two different teams, two different circumstances, two of their big four, which was reduced to this series to a big 3.25 out. And you just can't, even with Booker and Durant as great as they are, and and Booker, his first – kind of eh, game of the playoffs last night has just been transcendent the entire postseason. As good as those guys are, if you're a thin team and you lose guys number three and four, you just – it's hard. And you know why it's hard? Because everyone today is going to talk about the Suns and what a disaster it is ending their season this way. How do they fix this? Was the Durant trade a mistake? Is DeAndre Ayton gone? Um, what is Matt Ishbia going to do? What changes are going to be made? Oh, my God. You know why they lost? They lost mostly because the Denver Nuggets are awesome. And a lot of the national media spent the whole year just kind of like patting the Nuggets on the head. Hey, that's a cute team. Look at that. Jokic doesn't jump. And who's their second best player? Jamal Murray. And do we trust Michael Porter? And blah, blah, blah. And that was a mistake. And even now, I've heard skepticism, including on our airwaves, about the, the idea that the Denver Nuggets this team in the Rocky Mountains could beat the Lakers or the Warriors 
in a seven-game series in the conference finals, I got news for you. They're going to be favorites in that series, whoever they play. If you're sleeping on the Nuggets now, you are just so late to the party. The party ended. The party's over, and you're knocking on the front door, and people are telling you that the, you're Larry David. The party was yesterday. I had the Nuggets in my inner circle of title contenders to start this season. And people who have listened to this podcast for a long time may remember that when Jamal Murray tore his ACL in, I think, April of 2021, I opened this podcast with like a 15-minute monologue about why that injury was so heart-wrenching. And I said several times I was going to pick the Nuggets to make the finals that year at the start of the playoffs had he not gotten injured. And it was only eight games. It was eight games, I think, when Aaron Gordon got traded to the Nuggets. Tim Connolly's last big move for that team. And I think it was eight games of Aaron Gordon, Jokic, Murray, Michael Porter Jr. And their fifth starters are words like Will Barton. And those eight games were so utterly dominant. The fit was so seamless with Aaron Gordon. I never shook those eight games, ever. And it, it was a small sample, and you don't want to read too much into eight games. And I, I know that, and I, I watched damn near all of them because I wanted to see what this team looked like. And what I saw was jaw-dropping. And I've mentioned before, one of those games was against the Clippers, the team that Denver had humiliated in the bubble. <laughs> the team that, I mean, the Jamal murray Nikola Jokic pick-and-roll is starting to rack up casualties now. It's starting to rack up casualties Doc Rivers in Los Angeles, casualty. Montrez Harold never been a relevant player really in the NBA since meeting that pick and roll in that playoff series. And the Nuggets in that regular season game, in that eight-game stretch, they or the Clippers, right? They played everybody. And as we know now, they it's just not a thing that happens a lot. They played everybody, and they tried really hard to win that game. It was in Los Angeles at what was then Staples Center. And... It had the sense of, okay, we're, we're going to try to avenge what happened in the bubble. And you're like, we're playing everybody. We're going for it. And the Nuggets just kicked the absolute crap out of them. From tip to buzzer, it was never close. You saw exactly why they got Aaron Gordon to defend guys like Kawhi and at least make them work. And they just ran circles, or, or I, I guess in Nuggets, in Nuggets sort of style, like bobbed and weaved and jogged and cut and passed circles around the Clippers. And then Jamal Murray got hurt. And yeah, I didn't pick the Nuggets to win the championship or make the finals this year. Uh, preseason, I picked the Clippers. And before the playoffs, I picked the Suns. I, I think I overestimated Denver's slump in the last six weeks of the season. I overworried about it. Very clearly now they were a team that was not playing possum, but just like, all right, we got the number one seed locked up. We're going to coast. And I knew that on some level, but the fact that their slump was really driven by shaky defense and that was always the question about their team I think I always worried over worried about that and I picked the Suns in seven in this series and look we don't know how it would have unfolded with CP and Aiton but this is how it unfolded but preseason my inner circle of contenders had three teams from the Western Conference Warriors Clippers Nuggets over the Suns over everybody else like this team is really good and it shouldn't be a surprise that they are here now and first of all all the Jokic skeptics that I've heard from for the last two years after voting him MVP each of the last two years, easily, frankly, um, not this season. I voted for Embiid because of that last six weeks. 
all the and I kept saying this and I kept writing this like everyone what has Jokic done in the playoffs what has Jokic done in the playoffs I'm like did I miss when they got to the conference finals in the bubble here are Jokic's playoff stats now for his career 27 points a game 12 rebounds a game 7 assists a game 27 12 and 7 on 53 41 59 shooting here are Jokic's stats from these playoffs 31 points 13 rebounds 9.7 assists 55% shooting, 48% from three, 56% from two. He's just an all-time great player. And I, I'm sorry if you've doubted it because, you know, they lost to the Suns with Facundo Campazzo and Austin Rivers as their starting guards, or they lost to the Warriors last year without Jamal Murray and the Warriors ended up winning the championship. The, the Nuggets have now won six playoff series in the last now five seasons and counting. One in 2019, two in 2020, one in 2021, none last year, and two this year. Six playoff series in five playoffs. That's That doesn't sound amazing, and they haven't gotten to the finals. That's a lot of playoff series wins. You don't win that many playoff series if you're not equipped to win in the playoffs. And the ultimate testament of that is that same offseason, the Clippers and the Nets made their huge, giant offseason splashes. KD and Kyrie in Brooklyn, Kawhi and PG in Los Angeles. In those same five playoffs, those two teams combined, combined won four playoff series. The Nuggets have won six. Chuck one up for continuity. And by the way, think about the Nets. Durant out. Kyrie didn't get in. James Harden now has a game seven in Boston. If he's out, he'll be out. And they that that what if in Brooklyn they I mean when those three were together they had it they were the best team in the NBA they were completely unguardable go back and watch that Boston series they won and then of course injuries strike the next round against Milwaukee go back and watch that series it was like oh my god and now they're all elsewhere and if if Boston wins Game Seven and that's a fifty fifty game God knows I'm not going to try to predict that all three of them could be out and Jokic and Murray and Porter and Ag. Roll on. And you know who else rolls on? KCP, fantastic trade. Loved it immediately, and it's worked out even better than I thought. Bruce Brown, loved the signing at the time by Calvin Booth. It's worked out even better than I thought. Christian Brown, they trusted him. They finally played Aaron Gordon at backup center. They have this roaring, switching defense with those guys on the floor when Jokic is on the bench. And Murray and Jokic together, it's just it's just magic. There's no antidote to it. You can't switch. Can't switch because Jokic will mash you in the post. You can't drop because Jokic will pop for threes or when you close out pump and drive and ba-bump, ba-bump, ba-bump. And they just, there was one play in game three where Jokic, they're just so creative, where Jokic didn't set a screen for Jamal Murray. He stood 15 feet away from Jamal Murray like he was maybe going to set a screen and the Suns were like, oh my God, something's happening. Some Whoever was on Murray opened up his stance and Murray just like went Hard, they got a switch. Murray did his little step back three, and they just make magic in the dead zone of the mid range. You know, we, we we watch pick and rolls now, and it's all off the dribble three, hard roll to the rim. Off the dribble three, hard roll to the rim. Off the dribble three, pick and pop three, hard drive to the rim. These guys kill you with just little cuts. It's death by a thousand shoulder fakes and bobs and weaves and floaters. And Jamal Murray gets into the lane and he's got a live dribble. And Jokic is slow rolling 18 feet from the basket. 
Jamal Murray's got you on a string. I'm like, all right, I can pull up here for a mid-range two. Or, oh, if I, if I, if I accelerate and go forward, that's going to pull Jokic's guy two more feet and get Jokic an eight-foot floater. And by the way, here, Jokic from floater range in the last two years, last two seasons, so floater range is outside the restricted area, inside the foul line. 62% shooting in each of the last two seasons. 62%. That's just, that's like bonkers. That, that's, I, you, you can't, you can't, you can't, shots that you can just be like, that's the shot we want to give up. You can't give up. It's like a, it's, it's a, almost a layup for him. Um, just a phenomenal performance in the playoffs so far for Denver. Phenomenal roster building, and Nikola Jokic has announced himself to anybody who was wondering. Yeah, he he's that good, and he's been this good for a long, long time. He deserved his two MVPs unquestionably. If you want to say he deserved this one in the playoffs, it proved it. And eh, I mean, I thought Embiid was sensational this year, and he's largely been very good in the playoffs despite an injury. The annual Joel Embiid, like, do we have to have this happen? Injury, um, and. The Nuggets roll on, and they will be favorites in the next round, and they should be favorites in the next round, whoever they play. They won't have the star power. They won't have the national profile. doesn't matter. They're that good. By the way, credit for Michael Malone, too, who made all the right adjustments from the regular season to the playoffs and has pushed the right buttons with that team. Phoenix, oh, my God. Look, I mean, when they made the trade – the first thing I said on this podcast was I will always think back to when the Clippers traded everything to unite Kawhi and Paul George, SGA, all the picks, all the swaps, whatever. And somebody in the league who's very smart, who's not affiliated with either of those teams, told me as I was seeking out opinions. And, and this opinion was like the consensus kind of opinion, but he put it most, most eloquently, I thought. It could go down. This is what he said about the Clippers trade. It could go down as one of the worst trades in the history of the NBA, but it's also a trade you have to make. And I said I thought about that quote again in the wake of the Durant trade. Not that it – like worst trade – one of the worst trades. Like that That was a little much. I mean this is Kevin Durant. But I, I just think – and everyone shouted back. And I said still like again the, 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 the clause two is it's a trade you have to make. That's a way of saying, fine, make it. Like, I, I can't say it's a bad trade. It's it's a good it, – I, I can't even say it's not a good trade. It's Kevin Durant. You you have to make it. But I think in everyone's exuberance about trades like this, people overlook the downside. And the downside usually hits. Like, most of these trades don't work. If your standard is you have to win a championship or make the finals, which the Suns did, by the way, two years ago. And, and for better or worse, when you trade everything – and the Suns traded everything. All the picks, the only swap that was tradable in this deal. Mikhail Bridges, who's, I think, probably going to be like a two-time All-Star. I don't think he's going to be an insane like perennial All-Star, but he's going to be really good. Cam Johnson, who's a starter and can plug and play on any team. The standard is you got to win. you got to get to the finals and probably win the championship. That's why the AD trade, which is, I think, the closest equivalent in terms of talent out and picks out, is always going to be a success because the Lakers won one. And by the way... AD is the best player on their team. They got a shot at another because he's been that good. The Drew Holiday trade is another comp that comes up a lot. The Bucks won. The price just wasn't the same. The pick outlay was, and it shouldn't have been. It's Drew Holiday and not Kevin Durant. The pick outlay wasn't the same. And the talent out the door wasn't the same. There's no Mikhail Bridges that Milwaukee is trading in that trade for Drew Holiday. Most of these trades, 
don't end up working. And, and you know, I, it was obvious at the time. The risk of this trade was Kawhi and PG were 28 and 29 when the Clippers got him. Kevin Durant's 34. He's had a bunch of injuries in the last four years. Chris Paul's 37 going on 38. He's injured in the playoffs every year. I said it at the time. If one of these guys gets hurt, there, there are teams where, like the Sixers with Embiid, where if their star player gets injured, it's like a freak injury, and you're like, well, that's just bad luck. What, what could we have done? We could never have foreseen that. The Suns, I said it then, if one of these guys gets injured during the playoffs, the Suns are not one of the teams who can say, well, we couldn't have possibly seen that coming. You could have seen it coming, and it happened. And now the the bill is going to come due. And again, I, th- I still think it's a trade you have to make because when you go through the paths that they could have taken, let's just outline them. Number one, trade Chris Paul and take a step back. Um, th- this was a middling playoff team, a mid-rung playoff, a good team, not a great team before this trade. So that's that's path one. They decided not to do that, and I think that was totally justifiable. Go all in on Durant, which was what, what they did. Make a smaller deal, an incremental deal where it's like some assets out the door, but not this many. And that was, I think, reportedly, Woj reported they were close to a deal for John Collins. And, and say, does that deal make us good enough to win the West in this kind of weird, open-ish season? Um while preserving most of our asset base. And the Suns, I think, correctly concluded, makes us better, but not good enough. Even in this open year, there are just too many good teams. And we're, even that scenario has to factor in the likelihood of Chris Paul getting injured too in the playoffs. And that team's just not good enough. And then the other option is just stand completely pat. Do nothing. Keep everyone. Keep everything. All the picks. All the players. Do what you do this season. Maybe it's the first round. Maybe it's the second round. And move on with everything in the bank. And the Suns decided, probably correctly, I should, I, let's be clear, probably correctly, that all in was their best chance to win a championship, a singular championship, which is the entire point of the whole goddamn thing. That, yeah, it sounds great to stand pat and keep Bridges and keep Cam Johnson and keep all the picks, and hope that that grows into something. Well, what is it going to grow into? Mikhail Bridges is really, really good. He and Booker, that's a fantastic foundation. Chris Paul is getting old in every scenario. DeAndre Ayton is doing whatever DeAndre Ayton just did in every scenario. Yeah, you got all the picks and all the stuff. So so let's say you keep all that. Is that team just as is growing into a championship team? I think that might be a stretch, and the Suns were correct to say that. Then you say, well, okay, but you can keep all that stuff and trade it for a star down the line when the when the team is quote-unquote ready. Well, that's what they did with Kevin Durant. If, if you're saying hoard everything for a star, that's what they did. And you can say, well, well, you got to got to wait for a star who's 28 or 27 or 26, a perfect fit with Devin Booker, and maybe doesn't cost you all this stuff, and maybe they should have held on to Camp John. Like, okay, is that going to happen? Is that guaranteed to happen? So I think the Suns looked at those four paths, small deal, stand pat, trade Chris Paul, go all in, and said, hey, if our goal is to win one, this is the best. this, this gives us the best chance of doing it. And I said at the time, it doesn't make them overwhelming favorites. It probably doesn't even make them favorites, period. Neck and neck with Denver in the West is what I said. And then you get to the East and it's like one monster team after another. 
Is that enough? Is being one of the bunch, one of the favorites, neck and neck with the other team in the West, is that enough? Is that good enough to justify the outlay? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I thought probably it was considering, well, I don't know if that's probably it was, but considering, again, where those other paths take you, it's reasonable for the Suns to say, yeah, even if we're neck and neck, it's worth it. And while that may give you the highest upside that path, the highest short-term championship equity, it also gives you the highest risk and the worst downside. And... I think that's undeniable. Like that Stan Pat scenario, you could be good for a long time. If you're if your number one worry is I don't ever want to be bad, I don't ever want to be the the Nets post Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett trade, that scenario insulates you from that. But it's not gonna maybe get you up here where the Durant trade got you. But you know, look, I mean, and you wanna say how could the Suns ever and, and, and the Suns analysis was how could we ever become the Nets post KG and Paul Pierce? Those guys were old. We have Devin Booker and Kevin Durant for two, three more years of Durant's prime. We have DeAndre Ayton. We'll be fine. And they're right in the sense that as long as they have Booker and Durant healthy, regardless of what happens with Paul, that should be a 50-win team. Those two guys are that good. One injury, and all of a sudden, it's like, ooh. And one of the reasons that it's like, ooh, is... The Aiton thing is now a disaster. And I can't believe how bad Aiton was in these playoffs. I can't believe how miserable everybody looked. I mean, if you go back and watch, and Perk nailed this on NBA Today when he did his little I Spy segment. If you go back and watch, there are like five plays in every one of these games where Aiton does something. And usually it's catch the ball at the rim in some traffic, yeah. But with a little bit of an inside advantage and also being giant. And instead of going up with it, Puts it down, dribbles, spins away for a hook. There was one in game, I'm going to forget which game it was. I think it was game five in Denver when he did that. And if you zoom in on it, you can see Ish Wainwright on the bench and the guy sitting next to him, but mostly Ish, Ish Wainwright. He, Aiton brings it down. Ish, oh, demonstrative. Like, oh, and there's like five of those every game. And the whole idea was, okay, worst-case scenario, Durant gets injured. Worst-case scenario, Durant ages poorly. We still have Booker and Aiton. What a backstop. And now it's like, do they have Aiton? He got worse. Somehow he got worse. Defensively, he was back to making some of the mistakes that marked like his rookie year where he didn't look like he understood the timing of big man defense, which is understandable and really hard, and he played a different system at Arizona. Um he, he just he, – he, he didn't look good. And it seems like ancient history now, but that New Orleans series two years ago when Booker was hurt, like Aiden has a 28-17 and 17 game in that series and like a 23-10 and 10 and a 22-7. and seven. He looked like a guy in that series who could get you those kind of numbers. And obviously with Durant and Chris Paul, he's not going to get those and, – and, and Booker, he's not going to get those kind of touches – but the Suns were so thrilled two years ago that he had bought into this more limited role and he's going to be an unbelievable defender and rim run and finish. And he got worse at that this season. And, of course, there was the whole thing about Monty Williams not communicating with him over the offseason. And maybe everybody bears some res- – not maybe. Everybody bears some responsibility for, for the Aiton thing. Like, the, the relationship seems to be bad across the board. 
There's, there's, there's obvious moments of tension during every game. The coach and the player admitted not talking to each other the entire offseason after a disaster game seven. It just seems bad. And going forward, they either got to salvage this. They got to salvage it somehow, whether it's with Aiton or trading Aiton. And by the way, I hate to say it, the other 29 teams all watch this series. Like, I keep having people in the league pitch me like, oh, man, Orlando should go go get Aiton. Like, Wendell Carter Jr. for Aiton. Orlando's got a lot of cap space. I'm like, why, would, what is, why is Orlando doing that? Wendell Carter Jr. is really good. I know nobody watches the Magic. He was probably better than Aiton this year. And people are pitching me these trades like, well, Wendell in a first could get a first. Just keep Wendell Carter Jr. is on a great contract. Um, that's the biggest takeaway, honestly. Because once Paul got hurt, and I know they they won the two games without Chris, and, and then Aiton gets hurt. And if you want to be the guy criticizing Aiton for not playing and criticizing AD for not playing, that's cool. You do do you. I'm not going to do it. Like, if you're hurt, you're hurt. Particularly a head injury like Anthony Davis. I thought that dialogue was a little weird. That's the biggest, the biggest kind of big thing hanging over the franchise now. And, and obviously they have a new owner. And I saw Suns fans last night wondering about the future of Monty Williams and the future of James Jones. And frankly, that seems a little much to me. I voted Monty Williams coach of the year twice. Um, this is a brand new team, but you just never know with, with new owners. We'll see what, we'll see what happens. And lastly, the Durant stuff is going to be very, very loud. And he, they needed him to be transcendent in the series and he was just good. But I mean, let's not, let's not like, let's not just dismiss 29 and a half points a game, nine and a half rebounds a game, five assists a game. Let's not like pretend that he shrank from the moment or just laid an egg. Those are real numbers. He averaged 30 points a game in the series. He averaged 29 for the playoffs on 48% shooting. But 45% shooting overall in this series, 22% from three, 51% from two. I mean, that's below his standards. He, he, he struggled at times to get clean looks, and he struggled to make threes the whole series, good threes. They needed him to make them, and he didn't make them. 30 assists and 23 turnovers, I think, for the series. That's a lot of turnovers. And last year against against Brook against Boston, rather, he had like just a straight up like what's going on with Kevin Durant kind of series. Um, lots of puzzling turnovers in that series. And yet I've been on the train of like Durant's a top twelve player of all time. And this is the kind of thing that at that level, a playoffs like this, which is just good when they needed great, coming off another playoffs that was short and not that good. Like it might knock you down a peg or two, and you gotta, and you gotta, you you gotta, I guess, be better next time around. It was they needed him to be transcendent, and he was just good. And it does feel like there's he's paying some sort of karmic price for the Warriors' decision. It's just it's just unbelievable. He'll never get the credit for the two Finals MVPs. He's a two-time Finals MVP, and people talk about him like like those things don't count. And frankly, like. He and his people seem astonished that fans don't count those as much as they should. It's not that they totally discount them. They just don't count them as, like, equal to, you know, Dirk's finals MVP or something and Dirk's championship. And it it is because the deck was, to the degree it can ever be stacked in a sport where injuries and randomness and other great teams have a lot to say about it. And the Rockets almost beat the Warriors in their second year together with Durant. Like, the deck was heavily weighted 
And everybody knows that and everybody knew it at the time. And we can all reverse engineer like, well, what quote unquote should he have done? I don't, I'm not in the should business. He wanted to go to Golden State and he did. And he won championships. That's what he wanted. He had fun for some of that run. That's what he wanted. He enjoyed their style. Sometimes that's what he wanted. He didn't stay in Oklahoma City. He didn't go to Washington. He didn't go to Boston. And the Celtics were really, really not confident, but they thought they had a shot to get Durant in 2016. He didn't go to any of those places. He went to Golden State. Then he went to Brooklyn. That's an all-time disaster. Now he's in Phoenix. And in the process of going to Phoenix, the Suns forked over a lot of assets to get him, which is going to make it very, very hard for them to really tweak this team. Bobby Marks has the whole thing. They're at the second apron already. They may not get the tax mid-level exception even. Their trade flexibility is going to be limited. All those new rules are coming into play. And if Phoenix ultimately just just becomes this, becomes like second round exit, second round exit, what's the next thing? It does unavoidably start to color your just it's it's not perception of him as a player, because I know what Kevin Durant is as a player. We all do. He's Kevin freaking Durant. He's he's going to be like a top five all-time scorer in the NBA with borderline 50, 40, 90 efficiency, and he's seven feet tall, and he's a very good defender and a good playmaker and all that. Like the the that, what I just described, is a top 10 to 12 player of all time. Physical stature, statistics, all of it. But there is going to just be something about his career that feels a little off. And I think that's okay. I'm not normally the feels guy. I'm not normally like, he ruined the league and this and that. But it, 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 it and I said this when he got to Phoenix, like it, it did feel like the signature something, the signature place, the signature team, the signature championship, the signature moment even, it seems like that is a little bit missing. And he's got moments. Like, forget forget the two-time finals MVP, the three over LeBron, all of it. But I do think it's fair to come away from this and be like, man, it just feels a little like something's off. Something's missing. The career arc hasn't arced the way that it quote unquote should, the way that makes you feel good. And Sun's got a lot to do this offseason. And that was a another second straight disaster last night. And Denver just took it to them. Just took it to them. They came out and were like, we're done. We're done with you. We're done with the series. We are not going home for game seven. We're going home to rest and wait for one of these big market teams who everyone thinks is going to beat us because we're just a little Denver over here. And we don't we don't get the respect that we deserve. So that's it for today. Busy, busy week in the NBA. Busy weekend coming up. At least one game seven tonight. Uh, we have two more game sixes. I previewed those with Howard Beck yesterday. Enjoy it. What a playoffs round. And we still got two to go. Thank you for listening, everybody. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.